Well, you can always tell when it's a Getty song, right? It's just chunky, man. There's just a lot of good stuff going on. It's like, whoa, slow down. I need to take all this in. This is not just like superficial little fluffy words here. This is like deep theology. They're like telling a story here, right? Just like the old hymns, the hymns of old did, right? They would always tell a story in different verses. And so I just love those modern hymns by the Gettys and hope you do as well. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And to tonight, we're going to slow down our pace a little bit. And instead of trying to uh, bite off the entire chapter like we've been doing the last couple of weeks, uh, we're going to just look at half the chapter tonight uh, because these first seven verses uh, of Ecclesiastes, I think, are, or, or, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 are some of the most important verses, not just in the book of Ecclesiastes, not just in the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. And you're probably familiar with these verses, but let me read them as we begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought, to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. Now, I don't know what that sounds like to you, but if uh, if you've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes with us over the last several months... You might look down and go, what? That's in the book of Ecclesiastes? That doesn't seem to fit with everything else we've been studying so far. It seems like more of an oasis, right, in, in this dry desert of, of Ecclesiastes and, and the cynicism that we've been dealing with, right, in, in the life under the sun, or at least a man who's looking at life without God, right, he can, he can become very cynical about life. Uh, this is very uh, spiritual, uh, this, this is all of a sudden, uh, God is interjected into this book uh, in, the, in the clearest, uh, strongest, uh, powerful way so far. And uh, this is a great portion of God's Word, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it tonight. But let me begin uh, by telling you... Um, about the Reformation a little bit, because I think it would be a good way to introduce this section. And whenever we think of those who played a strategic role in the Protestant Reformation, usually men like Luther and um, Huss and Zwingli and Knox and Wesley and Calvin, these are the guys that typically come to our minds, right? But in the days leading up to the Reformation, there was a lesser-known German theologian named Sebastian Brandt, who published a book in 1494 called The Ship of Fools. Anybody heard of this book, The Ship of Fools? 
Uh, I hadn't heard of it either um, uh, until today. Um, Brandt didn't support the Reformation movement, but many of the criticisms of the church that he expressed in this well-known work uh, were later echoed by the Reformers. And not only did the Ship of Fools become one of the most successful books in the entire history of literature, uh, the term Ship of Fools remains to this day one of the oldest allegories in Western literature, music, and art. In fact, you may not have heard the book, The Ship of Fools, but some of you old-time rockers, right, you might remember songs from either The Doors or Grateful Dead or Bob Seger or Robert Plant. They all had a song on one of their albums called Ship of Fools. So it's a, it's a popular uh, imagery or uh, analogy, if you will, um, uh, uh, really uh, in, our, in our culture. And, and the image of this ship of fools is that of a ship packed with deranged passengers. Passengers that are just insane, they're mad, who have been enticed on board by a joker who's just as crazy as all of them, who offers them a free passage to a fool's paradise, uh, which you could liken to a desired utopia in life, some, something out there that they're wanting to, to achieve or they're wanting to get to some place, some utopic place. However, on that ship, there's no captain, and therefore there's no direction or destination. No one has a clue where they are or where they're going or when they get there. And so Brandt intended this ship of fools concept to depict life on earth for those who are foolishly and frivolously trying to find meaning and understand the purpose of the journey of life. And so he suggested that people um, can, can escape this futile and foolish quest. They can get off this ship of fools by respecting God and obeying His commands for our lives. Sound familiar? Brandt was very well versed in the scriptures, and uh, it's obvious that this vivid analogy that he came up with in this book, The Ship of Fools, um, was clearly based on the insight of Solomon found here in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, there's a famous woodworking or woodwork, uh, a wood engraving, I guess they call it, a wood carving of this ship. Uh, in fact, I was thinking as I looked up at our, at our, at our diagram, our little picture tonight, we used the maze, right? We all get that, finding meaning beyond the madness. We're all in that maze, right? Uh, we could have put that ship of fools, right? Picture that wood carving of the ship of fools up there, and, and that's the whole point, right? It, you're made for more. Get off that ship, right? Everyone's on that ship. Guess what? You're born on that ship, right, uh, by nature, and we're on this, this, this pointless journey until we realize there's, there's a North Star out there, right? And that North Star is, is God, and we get to Him through Jesus Christ. But we know that um, the book of Ecclesiastes, the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes, is exactly the point of the ship of fools, right? Uh, Brandt said that the, the way to escape this futile, foolish quest of a, of a pointless life is by respecting God and obeying His commands. That's exactly what Solomon concluded in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is to fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. And uh, that's, the, that's, the giveaway, that's the giveaway, okay? That was a spoiler 
alert or warning right there. That, you just got the end of the book, okay? That, that's the whole point of this thing. That's where he's going. But up until, uh, in all the chapters preceding that, leading up to that epic conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Solomon hinted at the fact that all of us have an, an innate sense that there is a God who will judge us someday, that we're going to have to stand before this God. He, he mentions that again in, in chapter 14 of, of chapter 12, verse 14 of chapter 12, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. He's, he's hinted about this. Starting back in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, He has made everything appropriate in His time. He has also set eternity in their heart. In other words, God has, has, has created us with a God-shaped vacuum, right, that only He can fill. And he, he, He's created us in, a way to, in such a way that we all know that there's more to this life than just living and dying. Well, you say, well, what is that? Well, verse 17 of chapter 3, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. And then we see in chapter 11, verse 9, he says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And so the reality of the judgment to come, along with the present futility of life without God, should naturally prompt all of us to seek a relationship with God so that we can understand the true meaning of life and cope with the problems and challenges of life and to be ready to face Him someday. And yet Solomon realized that even man's approach to God can be corrupted just like everything else in this sin-cursed world. Um, Religion can be one of the most futile, uh, meaningless, pointless, vanity of vanities uh, on this planet. So you say, what is religion? Religion is basically man's attempt, right? Our attempt to relate to God. That's what religion is. It's our attempt to relate to God. And even though people are instinctively religious, oftentimes religiosity leads them not to God. It leads them what? Away from God, further away from God. Uh, Romans chapter 1 makes this very clear in shocking terms. In Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, right, that's the, that God's placing eternity in our hearts, right, that we know there's a God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Interesting, they became futile, there's our word from Ecclesiastes, right, uh, in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So you've got futility and you've got foolishness. We're right in line with the, with the wisdom literature of Solomon. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 23 is basically a description of all of the man-made religions that have popped up over the, over the centuries since man existed, right? You've got people worshiping themselves. They, they make images in the form of man. Uh, you've got, uh, that's uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Makes a statue of himself, of birds. Uh, you could say that's uh, maybe the, 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 the um, uh, Indians and their, 
uh, totem poles and they worshiped the birds and the eagles and things like that, the four-footed animals, right? We, we know that uh, in, in India, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, they worship cows and they worship uh, uh, all sorts of four-legged animals, crawling creatures. Egypt used to worship the beetle, okay? Not the beetles, the beetle, a beetle, right? Um, the, the point is this, that the abundance of religions in the world doesn't prove man's devotion to God, but man's depravity. That they're coming up with all these ways to, to worship not the true God, right? A, a God of their own making. They, they forsake the, the, the truth of God for a lie. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And I'll never forget going to a Hindu temple in Malibu, uh, out in California, and uh, a beautiful setting right along the coast, and they had this Hindu temple. And I'll never forget walking up to the entrance of this Hindu temple, and there was a plaque that read this, and it was so compelling, I wrote it down. It said this, This temple belongs to the Hindu community of America. It symbolizes their devotion to God and dedication to the spiritual uplift of humanity. And I felt like going, right? Because that, that, that does not symbolize their devotion to God. In fact, it symbolized their deviation from God. That they've gone away from the true God to worship and serve an idol. And it shows their spiritual downfall. And so here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon wanted to help us avoid a kind of religion that's futile, that's empty, that's meaningless, that is really a deviation from the one true God. And if our effort to relate to God, to get to God, to, to, to show devotion to God is nothing more than just a religious charade, right, an outward display of words and actions that, we, that we're just kind of going through the motions and we're doing things that we don't mean, we're saying things we don't mean, then, then our worship is in vain. It's pointless, it's meaningless, it's vanity of vanities. We're right back where we started from, right, at the beginning of the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes. And so in this chapter, Solomon gave us some sage wisdom when it comes to how to have a meaningful relationship with God. Uh, Listen, life is meaningless apart from God. And the last thing you need is a meaningless relationship with God. That's not going to help. Okay, that's typically what happens is we, we, we see the meaningless of life, and so we think, okay, now I need to have a relationship with God, and yet we, we just find more meaninglessness, right, in our relationship with God, because we're not approaching God the way he's, He tells us to approach Him here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Warren Wiersbe sets up this, this passage nicely when he said this, in Solomon's quest for meaning and satisfaction in life, he had visited the courtroom the marketplace, the highway, and the palace. Now he paid a visit to the temple, the magnificent building whose construction he had supervised. He watched the worshipers come and go, praising God, praying, sacrificing, and making vows. He noted that many of them were not at all sincere in their worship, and they left the sacred precincts in worse spiritual condition than when they had entered. Their acts of worship were perfunctory, insincere, and hypocritical. We know that God takes worship very seriously, and so should we. Just two examples that you might be familiar with here. Uh, In Leviticus 
Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, you might want to turn there with me. This is the story of Nadab and Abihu. You ever heard of those guys? Nadab and Abihu, they were the sons of Aaron. And listen to what, um, they, they were obviously the sons of Aaron, they were the Levites, right? They were part of the priestly tribe. It was their responsibility to uh, perform the sacrifices on behalf of the people, to be the intermediary between the people and God. And so they were responsible for the temple worship, what went on in the temple. And in, in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which, had not, which he had not commanded them. So apparently they had these fire pans that they would use to perform their ceremonies and, and, and things. But it says that they did something um, that God had not commanded. It was, they offered some kind of strange fire. We don't know exactly, we don't know exactly what it was, but they, they violated God's presence. They, they, did, they, they tried to offer something to the Lord that uh, he had not requ- requested or required. And notice what happens. You, you play with fire, you get burned, right? <laughs> Big time burned, okay? Verse 2, and the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. So this is serious, right? They were messing around, you know, thinking, oh, this is, let's, let's try this out. And they just kind of took things in their own hands and said, well, let's try this. And they offered some strange fire. And God said, fine, you want to do that? You're dead. Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. In other words, he had nothing to say. He knew that God was right and his sons were wrong. And he couldn't protest. Um, he couldn't defend them. He just kept silent. And um, he probably didn't want to get burned up too, right? He, he didn't want to push any of God's buttons. God was not happy with his sons. And so I think I just should shut my mouth right now and not say a word, right? So we see from that Old Testament example how serious God is about worship. How about the New Testament example of Ananias and Sapphira? Probably a, a story you're more familiar with in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. A, na- a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now again, he, it wasn't wrong that he only gave a portion of what he made off that piece of property. That wasn't the issue. Um, it seems the issue was that he wanted everyone else to think that he was given all of it, right? Um, he was putting on a show, and he was secretly keeping back some of the money for himself, and he wanted everybody else to think, oh, isn't, isn't Ananias and Sapphira, aren't they generous? They sold the property, and they gave it all to the work of the Lord at the church. And so he was going through this ruse, right, um, going through the motions, and uh, Peter confronts him and says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Verse 5, and he heard these words 
And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there was a lapse interval about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Well, what was she doing? Lying, right? Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last And the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Interesting, both of these acts, Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, both of these acts of judgment, severe judgment, took place at the beginning of a new era of worship for God's people. This was Nadab and Abihu were initiating the, the worship in the tabernacle. They just opened the tabernacle, and, and, and Aaron and his, and his sons were, were mediating that worship. And so they messed around with worship, right, at the very beginning. and says, no way. God says, no way. I'm setting the standard right now that I'm holy. And I'm not messing with any of you when you come into my presence. Same thing, um, Ananias and Sapphira that, that all happened at the, at the birth of the church, right? When the church was established at Pentecost. And so God was setting the standard for that church that, listen, you better, you better um, tread lightly, right, in the presence of the Lord when you come to church, right? This is serious business, and God takes this very seriously. And so I think both of these incidences show how passionate God is about being approached in fear and reverence. And sadly... I think few people approach God that, that way these days. Would you agree? I mean, in fact, churches actually have on their billboards out front uh, inviting people uh, by advertising casual worship. You, you ever seen that on a church billboard? Like you've got traditional worship, you've got contemporary worship, and I've even seen, seen it says, it says casual worship. And I'm just scratching my head going, that is like such an oxymoron. There's no such thing as casual worship. But that's the mindset of the church today. It's just like, you know what? It, it just, it, you can just come as you are, right? It's casual. Um, those two words don't belong in the same, you know, universe, let alone what, right? Ballpark, the same, same church sign, casual worship. Um, a couple of our commentaries made this, these notes, just in, by way of introduction here, that the writer's target here in verses 1 through 7 is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing, turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite get around to what he's volunteered to do. Ooh, that kind of hurts, right? That's the casual worship mentality in the church today. They, they like to come for a good sing, they turn up cheerfully enough, they listen with half an ear, and they never quite get around to what they volunteered to do. Philip Ryken goes on. He says, in other words, the preacher is speaking to just about everyone who ever goes to church. <laughs> he says his words are not for people who never go to church. This is not for people that don't go to church at all. This is for us tonight, okay? This is for the people that showed up to church. He says his ex- exhortations are for people who do go to church, but sometimes find it hard to pay attention whose thoughts wander when they pray, and who are full of good intentions about serving God, but have trouble following through. 
there for people who know they need to get involved, but usually come up with some excuse for not joining a ministry right now. They've started a serious program for personal Bible studies several dozen times, but have never finished. They try to pay attention in church, but usually spend half their time thinking about the upcoming week. How you doing tonight? Does that sound uncomfortably familiar? See, too often I think we are guilty of offering to God what Solomon might call not the ship of fools, but the worship of fools. And if you'll notice, the word fool is used three times in this passage. Verse 1, he says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Verse 3, For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. And so tonight's title is The Worship of Fools. And what I want us to see in this passage is five ways to avoid making a fool of yourself in the presence of God. Okay? Five ways to avoid making a fool of yourself in the presence of God. Or if you want to take it more positively, five ways to worship God wisely. Okay? Five ways to worship God wisely. And I'll just tell you what they are at the very beginning. You need to gear up. You need to listen up. You need to shut up. Sorry, kids. I told them not to say shut up, and I'm just saying it right in front of the whole church now, right? (laughs) Shut up, pay up, and look up. Gear up, listen up, shut up, pay up, and look up. That's how you can avoid making a fool of yourself in the presence of God. Let's look at this first way. Number one is gear up. Verse 1, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. That house of God that Solomon was referring to was most likely the temple that he had built in Jerusalem. Um, I think it just simply represents the presence of God. You could call this church the house of God, even though we know it's not the house of God. The house of God is our our spirit, right? We know that we house the spirit of God within us. Um, God's not encased in a building but we, we talk about houses of God, right? We talk about churches, uh, houses of God. Um, so it's talking about going into the presence of God, coming to worship God. That's what you do. When you go to the house of God, you go to worship. You go to offer sacrifices. You go to pray. You go to sing. You go to listen to hear God's word preached. And so what Solomon was saying he, when he said, guard your steps as you go to the house of God, is he simply emphasizing how important it is to properly prepare yourself to enter the presence of the Lord. In other words, you need to guard your steps. You you shouldn't just go, oh, do-do-do-do-do-do, you know? Just just walking in flippantly, casually, you know, come as you are, right? How many times have you gone to a church and and that's the whole mindset? Hey, just come as you are. God doesn't care, just come as you are. Well, I appreciate that sentiment, right? that you don't have to clean your life up before you come to the Lord. That's why you come to the Lord, so you'll clean your life up, right? You know, don't, don't fix your life and then come to the Lord. The point is, but I think this mentality is come as you are. It's like, hey, you know what? God doesn't care who you are or what you've done. Just come, and, 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 and he'll be your buddy. It's just kind of this buddy thing, right? Just come as you are. He'll take you in no matter what state you're in. And it really, I think, minimizes the fact that, that, that uh, God requires us to live lives of obedience. 
You don't hear that in, in the church today, it seems. Now, there's, there's too much of this, you know, just lackadaisical approach. And there's little or no emphasis on the necessity to live a life of obedience and to have an overall reverence for God. I think there's just an overall lack of reverence for God. That God is the big daddy in the sky and he just, he can't wait for you to run to him so you can give him a big, he can give you a big hug, right? Now, is that true? That God loves us deeply like his children and we run to him, he hugs us, right? But listen, if, if, if my son or daughter, right, uh, is, is living in disobedience, right, and, and they want to come run up and act like everything's hunky-dory with daddy, right, I don't know that I'm going to be just warmly embracing them and acting like everything's okay. We're going to have to talk, right? We're going to have to sit down and we're going to have to say, hey, let's talk about what's going on in your life. And, and I'm going to do it in a loving, gracious way. I'm not going to just hit them and say, I don't want to, I'm, not, I'm not going to hug you until... Until you repent, right? No. There's going to be love in how that sin is handled, but it's not just going to be like, hey, just come as you are. It's no big deal, right? I think you, hopefully you guys know where I'm coming from here, okay? So notice it says here, guard your steps as you go to the house of the Lord and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What are sacrifices of fools? There's a couple of them I can think of in the, in the Old Testament. How about Cain? Right? He didn't offer what God told him to offer. Abel did. Abel offered a blood sacrifice. We know from the book of Hebrews that somehow, somewhere, uh, sometime, he had commanded them. That's what he was looking for because God obviously was not pleased with this, the fruit and vegetables, right, that, that, uh, that Cain brought. That was a sacrifice of fools. How about Saul? Right? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, when uh, he was supposed to kill King Agag, right, and wipe out all the Amalekites and, and, uh, and, and destroy every living thing, uh, men, women, children, animals, everything, and then Samuel shows up and he says, and Saul runs to greet him, and he says, I've done everything the Lord told me to do. And Samuel says, well, what's this bleeding of the sheep I hear? And Saul says, well, hey, you know, the guys thought it would be a good idea to save some of the sheep, and we'll offer them as a sacrifice to God, thanking him for his victory that he gave us over the Amalekites. And what did Samuel say? To obey is better than sacrifice, right? It would have been better if you just obeyed and did what you were supposed to do um, instead of sacrifice. How about the prophets of Baal? Talk about a sacrifice of fools, right? The prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, right? They took, the, they took the, the cow and they put it on the altar and they were doing all this stuff, jumping around, cutting themselves, singing, dancing, trying to get God to come, you know, Baal, right, to, to, to ignite this this, this offering, and, and they, were, they were a bunch of fools, acting like a bunch of idiots. And, and uh, Elijah's just like, you guys done yet? I've given you half the day. Nothing's happened, right? It was a sacrifice of fools. The whole point is, he says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Don't be guilty of coming to him with a sacrifice, a, f- a foolish sacrifice. Basically, you're coming and you're not prepared you're unprepared. So we need to learn to approach God thoughtfully, uh, carefully, I might add even cautiously, and prepare our hearts before we come to church. And uh, I don't have time to, to talk about it tonight, but I would encourage you to uh, grab your copy of Expository Listening off your shelf when you get home tonight, 
or maybe in the next couple of days. That's the book that we gave out when we were done writing it. I gave it to everyone. If you don't have one, they're available in the Resource Center. But uh, there's a whole section in there about how to practical suggestions for preparing your heart for worship. Things, steps you can take to get your heart ready to come to church on Sunday and Wednesday, right? To sit under the teaching of God's Word, um, to have a well-cultivated heart so you get the most out of the sermon that you hear. So, uh, again, I want to remind you, and and if you want just a quick reference, it's in the very back of the book. It's just a quick reference to to hearing and obeying uh, God's Word. Um, But you you might want to refresh that uh, in your mind as we want to make sure we're coming ready to worship. So, the first way to avoid making a fool of yourself in the presence of God is make sure you gear up. In other words, you come prepared. You don't just show up and you're like, oh, you know, you're not, you know, it's like coming to class and you didn't do your homework and the teacher calls on you and you look like a doofy, like a, a doofy face, right? Because you don't know the answer. You're just like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't, didn't come ready, right? You don't want to be that guy in the presence of God. Secondly, you need to listen up, okay? You need to gear up, and then once you get there, you need to listen up. Notice he says, uh, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they're doing evil. That word listen there, when he says uh, draw near to listen, uh, it's, it's not only the idea of paying attention, Right, listening with your ear, but it also carries the idea of following through on what you hear, and that means doing what you hear, obeying what you hear. In fact, there's, a, there's an inseparable relationship between listening and obeying in the Bible. I brought this out and tried to point this out in the, in, in the book, Expository Listening, that throughout Scripture you see that listening is equated with obeying. In many passages you see there's a direct connection between listening and obeying. They're, they're one and the same, like two sides of the same coin. They're, in fact, they're synonymous terms. Um, in fact, there's, there's a direct lexical link between the words hear and obey in both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word for hear is Shema. Hear, O Israel, right? The Lord our God is one. The Shema, okay? Guess what? Guess what, guess what the word for obey is in, in the Hebrew? Shema. There's no, there's no separate word. It's one word for hear and obey. In other words, to listen is to obey. Same thing. In the New Testament, the word for hear is akuo, and the word for obey is hupakuo, which means to, to, to literally to hear under. Okay, so it's a derivative. Obey, the word obey is a derivative of the word hear. So the implication is is, is that in God's mind, when the Spirit inspired the Word of God, hearing and obeying are one and the same. And so when you come into the house of the Lord, you need to listen up. Um, It's like what Jesus said over and over again. He who has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? He wanted you to listen twice as often as you talk, right? So... We need to have the heart of Samuel, right? Remember when Samuel uh, was uh, hearing someone call his name, and he thought it was Eli? And three times he went back to Eli and said, hey, Eli, what's up? You, you need me? He says, hey, listen, I'm not calling you. Go back to bed. 
And by the third time it happened, he says, hey, why not next time you hear somebody calling your name, why don't you say, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. <laughs> and, 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 what, and that's what he did, right? He heard, he heard Samuel, Samuel, and he said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That, that's the attitude that we need to come to church with, right? Speak, Lord, for your servant is, I'm here to listen. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn so that I can obey and I can live it out in my life. And so close your mouths and open your ears when you come into the presence of the Lord. Don't be that guy, right, who comes in and just wants to talk all the time, right? You need to come in to listen and learn, be teachable. That's the whole idea. You're coming to learn. You're, you're coming with a teachable spirit. You're coming to listen. And that leads us to the third way not to make a fool of yourself in the presence of God is just shut up. Shut up. You're in the presence of God. Shut up. Verse 2, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Why? For God is in heaven and you're on earth, therefore let your words be few. In other words, that verse is intended to put us in our place, right? God's in heaven. He's the Almighty, right? He's infinite. His ways are higher than our ways. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? And here we are down here, little peons, and we don't have a clue what's going on. God's in heaven. You're on earth. Let your words be few. So the presence of God is no place for compulsive talking. Don't think you're going to be heard for, for your, 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 your much talking. Uh, remember Jesus said to the Pharisees when it came to praying in, the, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he said, And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Like, maybe if I just talk enough, I'll get the job, right? You go into that job interview and just jaw and da, 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 da. maybe if I just talk enough, I'll get the job. Probably not. Probably the best way to get that job is just be quiet and let them ask questions, just answer the questions, right? So he says, hey, don't think you're going to impress God, right, with your many words. Don't babble on relentlessly in the presence of God. And if you remember this, uh, uh, Matthew 15, 18 but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. The point is, every time our mouths are open, our hearts are on display. That'll convict you, right? Every time, whatever's coming out of your mouth is, is, is tattletaling on what's in your heart, okay? And we always talk about, well, you can't tell what's in a person's heart. You can't tell what's in a person's heart. I get that, okay? We're not God. But you can get pretty close by just listening to what people say. So the point is, a few, a few sincere words, let your words be few, a few sincere words are better than a lot of insincere words. How about this, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God, right? Be still and know that I'm God. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, this is a, a verse that Jesus quoted with the, in rebuking the Pharisees, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. He says, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. The point is your mouth is running, right? 
You're, you're going through the motions. You're, sing, you're singing all the songs. You're praying all the prayers, right? You're saying all the spiritual things. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. How's it going? Lord bless you. Yeah, right? But do you really mean it? Do you really mean what you're singing? Did you really mean the, the, the songs tonight? When you sang those songs, did you really mean those things? Or were you just kind of mouthing the words because you knew them by heart, right? But you were thinking about what you got going tomorrow. That's what he's saying is, is don't, don't be guilty of running your mouth and your heart's not here, right? How about James, James 1, 18 and 19? You, you're familiar with this passage. 19 says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to what? Hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. The reason why I read those other verses is because sometimes we think that's a standalone verse. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's, all, it's just purely about you know, our, 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 um, our hearing and our speech and our anger. But it's all related to how we respond to the Word of God. That's all, the, all those commands to be slow to, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, they're in connection with how we relate when we're sitting here under the Word of God being taught. Are we argumentative, right? Are we, are we wanting to take issue with what's being said, or, or are we just being quick to hear and slow to speak and uh, just, again, be humble and teachable? And don't get mad at the preacher. That's what it's saying. Look at verse 3. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Um, I think the point is the dream comes through much effort. I mean, I don't want to give you a theology of dreams here because the scriptures doesn't really tell us why we dream, although this verse comes pretty close, I think. If I was to find a verse to, to prove what I believe dreams are, I think dreams are simply uh, your mind, your subconscious mind working overtime on a problem or an issue that you were dealing with in that, on that day. That's what he's saying. For the dream comes through much effort. In other words, you're working really hard. You're, you're thinking about a, an issue. You're dealing with a problem. And, and next thing you know, you're dreaming about it, right, at night. Because your subconscious mind is just still working on it. So he says in the same way, you, 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 you're constantly, your mind's constantly working on something, some issue. You're going to dream about it. You're bound to dream about it in the voice of, fool, of a fool through many words. You keep talking, you're bound to say something stupid. And, and generally speaking, fools are talkative. And, and a hyperactive tongue often says things it shouldn't say, right? So, so we're saying here there's a close connection between folly and verbosity. Okay, The more you talk, the more likely you're going to say something foolish. Uh, Proverbs 10.19, very convicting verse. 10.19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who strains his lips is wise. Listen, if you talk a lot, you're bound to sin in something you say. The more words that come out of your mouth, the more likely it is that you're going to sin with your mouth. So be wise and restrain your lips. Don't talk so much. Listen, you could minimize the amount of sin in, in your, your life by just, like, minimizing how much you talk. 
That's pretty easy, right? You want to work on sin in your life? Don't talk so much. So you need to gear up, you need to listen up, you need to shut up, right? And then number four, you need to pay up. You need to pay up. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, we know that oftentimes when we come into the presence of God, right, we approach God, and uh, we're singing songs, and we're praying prayers, and we're hearing sermons and messages, and our hearts are being convicted, right, and being challenged, oftentimes we will make what? Vows or promises to God, right? You make decisions. Say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> or, Lord, I'm going to never do that again. Or, Lord, I'm going to give this much money to this project or this whatever. Uh, or I'm no longer going to have this be a part of my life. We, we make all these vows. We make all these promises uh, to God of, of what we're going to do or we're not going to do. And what he's saying, listen, if you make a vow, don't be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. In other words, if you don't, if you don't mean it, don't say it. If you don't intend to follow through, don't make that vow. And I think this is so helpful in a day and age that we live where we, where we have so many empty promises and shallow commitments. I mean, I, I quote that verse, verses 4 and 5, in every wedding ceremony that I perform. Right before they take their vows, by the way. And I just say, listen, when you make, the Bible says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should not, that you should vow and not pay. In other words, are you ready? Are you sure? Are you sure about this? Because you're about to make a promise, right, that you're going to stick together till death do you part or until Jesus comes home, right, until Jesus comes back to get you. And uh, typically it's, it's uh, I'll promise to love you as long as I feel like it, as long as we get along, as long as somebody else better doesn't come along, right? Or, or as long as you don't hurt me, right? Wedding vows, I think this is a great example. So God takes vows very seriously. They have very serious implications. L- listen to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. Moses talked about vows. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. In other words, it's better not to vow, right? Um, because then you're not sinning, but if you do vow and you don't fulfill your vow, you're sinning. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. I think a good example of someone who made a vow and followed through with it would be Hannah, right? First Samuel chapter 1 wanted a baby so bad, right? And she said to the Lord, I promise that if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And she did that, right? She followed through on her vow. And God blessed her. 
Probably the best known example of a rash vow, a foolish vow, a, a dumb vow, a vow that shouldn't have been made, uh, and that, that, that the guy had to pay for it, uh, was Jephthah, right, in Judges 11. Remember that, the story of that rash vow? Jephthah was one of the, um, one of the judges who God raised up to um, deliver the nation of Israel during the days of the judges. Listen to this in Judges chapter 11. This is a tragic story. Verse 29, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and, he, and then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it, then I shall be, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering." So he's probably thinking, well, maybe my black lab will come running out. I don't know, so my dog, my cow, my cat, my donkey, my camel, whatever the first thing that comes out from my property to greet me, I'm going to offer that as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from error to entrance of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Kiramim, so that the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. And here's where the story gets sad. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So he was a man of his word, right? But he should have never made that vow to begin with. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do not do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. In other words, offering me up as a burnt sacrifice. Talk about a devoted daughter, right? She was devoted to the Lord. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity and I, I and my companions. And he said, Go. So he went her sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. That's a dumb vow. <laughs> he was not thinking when he made that vow. And, and again, we have to be careful, right? We are, all of us are guilty of striking up some kind of bargain with God in, in the heat of the moment, right? In a dire situation, in a tight spot. Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll do this, Right? That's typically when we make foolish vows, right? But as soon as the crisis has passed, we either forget about the vow or don't follow through on the vow. Or we try to get out of paying the vow. Verse 6, do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. In other words, the messenger of God would either be the priest who broken vows were to be confessed to, according to Leviticus 5, or it could have been the prophet. Prophets and priests both called the messengers of God in the Old Testament. They were the interme intermediaries between the people and God. But listen, don't, don't try to worm your way out of a decision or a commitment that you made to God. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin by unfulfilled vows. Don't try to excuse yourself saying you didn't really mean, you didn't really mean it. And don't think... That some mechanical offering going through the motions before the Lord will somehow atone for that careless breaking of the vow. 
it, it always just makes me shudder when someone is planning to divorce their spouse and they actually say, say and I've had people say this to me, well, I'll do it and I'll, then I'll just ask God to forgive me. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, and, and what does it say? Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That makes God angry when you say, well, I'm going to sin and I'll just ask him to forgive me. And guess what? He's saying, you're not going to prosper. <laughs> I'm going I'm to frustrate, I'm going to destroy the work of your hands. You think you're miserable now in this marriage? You ain't seen miserable yet. You don't know miserable yet, right? Psalm 66, 13. Great cross-reference here. Psalm 66, verse 13. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. Interesting. So the psalmist realizes, right, that, hey, I, I realize I made a vow to you when I was in distress, and I cried out to you when my enemy was, was upon me, and I said, Lord, if you deliver me, I'll do this, and I, I've come now, and I've offered this burnt offering. I'm going to pay my vows. You know, getting back to the marriage thing, just to give you some hope, if you're in a tough marriage, in a miserable marriage, you say, so what are you saying, I just got to gut it out? Yeah. By the grace of God, you can. Because if God's, you made a vow, right? God wants you to keep that vow. And so he'll give you the grace to do that. Because it's his will. It's what he wants. He will grant you the grace to not just gut it out, but hopefully grow, right? And next thing you know, you wake up and you're like, wow, look at this amazing marriage we have because we didn't just quit on it, right? We, we kept our word, we kept our promise, and the Lord blessed that. God doesn't bless when you break your promises. He blesses when you keep your promises. And so you can keep your promises trusting that God's going to bless you if you do. And so pay up. And then lastly, look up, verse 7, for in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather, what? Fear God. Revere God. Stand in awe of God. Look up to God. That's the look up, right? You, when you look up to someone, you revere them, you respect them, you stand in awe of them, you look up to them. And so, again, we know this fear God um, this is one of the, the main themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it mentions fearing God in chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 8, and of course chapter 12. Um, at some point I want to address that whole really dichotomy, if you will, of fearing God and enjoying life. Because I think somehow in our minds we think those two things are mutually exclusive, Right? We see, we see we're, we're commanded throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to fear God, to fear God, to fear God, to fear God. And then at the same time, and sometimes even in the same context, where it's saying enjoy life, enjoy life, enjoy life, enjoy life. You say, how can I fear God and enjoy life at the same time? That's the, that's the beauty of the book of Ecclesiastes. The way to enjoy life is to fear God, right? And it's not like, well, I have a choice. I can either just fear God 
and live a miserable life, or I can punt God and just enjoy my life and have a great life. It's not, it's, that's not the decision you have to make in life. Unfortunately, that's what people think is, well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just be the, you know, the boring Christian guy over here. I'm just going to fear God. I'm not going to have any fun. I'm not going to enjoy, enjoy my life. I'm going to be the monk, right? Take a vow of celibacy, you know, become a nun, whatever. I'm, I'm going to just fear God, and I'm, I'm not going to enjoy my life. Or you're like, you know what? I can't enjoy my life and fear God at the same time. So I guess I'm going to just give God the hand, right? Speak to the hand, God. I'm just going to enjoy my life. These things come together in the book of Ecclesiastes in a beautiful way, a profound way. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So basically what Solomon is saying here is, listen, guys, take God seriously. Don't play games with God. He's your creator, he's your sustainer, and he's your judge. And he demands our utmost respect and our diligent obedience. And so don't make a fool of yourself when you enter the presence of the Lord. And I think I should just say this in conclusion, that we're talking about how to avoid being a fool in the presence of the Lord. The only way, you know, nothing, nothing would make you look more like a fool than to show up in the presence of God thinking you were in. Right? Thinking you were in. And you, you kind of, you, you just hypothetically, you die, you show up in heaven, right? Thinking you're in. I was a good guy, right? I didn't do anything that bad. I wasn't as bad as my neighbor, right? Um, so you show up and you, you, you just assume you're, I, I went to church on a regular basis. I gave to charity. I, you know, I, I, gave, I bought the Girl Scout cookies, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever you, you, you think you're in. And, and you walk in there kind of smart, and guess what? Jesus says, depart from me, I never what? Knew you. Point is, you're not going to even get in the presence of God unless you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that, that the only way for us to truly enjoy life the way God intended is to be a true worshiper of God, and the only way for us to be a true worshiper of God and have a genuine ha, and have a genuine meaningful relationship with God is through faith in His Son Jesus Christ. So we can't be this. We, we can't be this person. We we are the fool apart from Christ. We will be the fool apart from Christ. And I appreciated what Philip Ryken said in his commentary on this section of Scripture. Let me just read it for you, because I think it'll be an encouragement to you like it was to my heart in light of where does Jesus fit into all this. He said, When we consider the holiness of God and compare it with our own unholy worship, it is a wonder that any of us are still alive. Thank God for Jesus. It is not only His sufferings that save us, but also His obedience including the perfect worship he offered to his father. Jesus died for all our sins, including all the sins we've committed in the very act of worshiping God. All the times we made a fool of ourselves in the presence of God because we weren't geared up, we weren't listening up, we weren't shutting up, right? We weren't paying up, we weren't looking up. All the times we made a fool of ourselves in the presence of God, guess what? His death on the cross covers all that. 
But Jesus also did something more, he says. According to Hebrews, he took the words of Psalm 22, 22, made them his own in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. These words refer to the worship that Jesus offered at the temple and the synagogue. And vision, the Son of God singing the Psalms of the Spirit inspired, uh, the Spirit inspired and using them to praise the Father by faith in Christ. That perfect worship now belongs to us. We talk about that God puts Christ's righteousness on us. He treats him as if he lived our lives, right? And he treats us as if we lived his life. And so that perfect worship that Christ offered to God now belongs to us. It's credited to our account as if we ourselves had offered that to God. This is part of what it means for us to know Christ. Our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by the Son. When we know that, even our worship when we know that even our worship is forgiven. You never think about that? I need, to, I need to seek forgiveness for my worship. He said, when we know that even our worship is forgiven, then we can approach God with joyful confidence. Rather than saying, if I worship the right way, then God will accept me. We say, I'm already accepted through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now it is my privilege to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped. We come to worship the way that, the Sol- that Solomon tells us here in Ecclesiastes, paying attention to God, watching our step when we enter his sanctuary, and listening to the truth of his word. Isn't that good? It's a great way to connect Christ to this passage and to remember we don't want to walk away saying, okay, we've got another list of five things to do to be right with God, right? But to realize that Jesus already did all these things for us in his life and in his death. And we need to trust him as our Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we know we can come into the presence and we will never be uh, a fool in the presence of God when you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness because we are knuckleheads when it comes to worshiping you the way that you tell us to here in this passage, that we, we, we violate all of those principles regularly. And we just thank you that we, we know that um, we're forgiven through Christ's death on the cross. And, and, and on top of that, Lord, we're given his perfect righteousness and his perfect worship. That when we worship you, even in all of our failings and all of our flaws and in all of our deficiencies, Lord, and we don't measure up, but you don't see us necessarily. You see Christ worshiping in and through us. And we thank you for that. And in that sense, we can come as we are to you because we're, we're, we're in Christ, and we have that confidence, Lord, that you will never send us away. You'll never cast us away, because uh, we are one with your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, to really pursue um, a more pure and holy worship, Lord, that we would take worship as seriously as you do, and Lord, we would never flippantly come into your presence, but we'd always come carefully and uh, with a ready heart, ready to listen, ready to learn, ready to humble ourselves before you. And Lord, that we would do that in reverence and fear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.